Welcome to the College Sports Insider presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I am Jack Ford. So if you follow it all, the world of intercollegiate athletics, you've probably heard or seen talk about changes that are being suggested, mandated even, uh, focusing on things such as the, the, the safety and the wellness of intercollegiate athletes. And it all seems to make sense, uh, but one of the questions you might have was, well, wait a minute, how about the schools that have a lot of money and the schools that don't have a lot of money? How do they all handle that? Well, if you've been asking yourself that question, it would be like to know that we have somebody who can answer some of those questions for you right now. We're pleased to have Stevie Baker Watson from DePaul University, who is the Associate Vice President for Campus Wellness and the Director of Athletics and Recreational Sports there, and we're delighted to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. So um, I want to get into that subject, all right, and we'll talk about how, how institutions that are either smaller or have less resources deal with this because there are sort of cascading suggestions and plans and recommendations coming out there. And clearly the smaller institutions have as, as significant a devotion to the health and safety of their students and student-athletes than anybody does. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to that in a second. Um, but I want to talk about your your personal background because I think it gives you a marvelous perspective on all of these things um, and a little bit of a different background than you see many of, of the athletic directors have. So let's start off with, with you and how you got to this place where you are now and the pathway that you traveled. Well, I'm not sure I would have actually going to end up where I ended up. Okay. I loved sports. I was engaged in high school but not necessarily on the court in the field. So Mm -hmm. I was the kid that was keeping score, running Special Olympics, uh, doing whatever the coach needed to do. And then Mm -hmm. I fell in love with athletic training. By the way, that that kid is essential, by the way. I I think so, too. And you fell in love with athletic training. I fell in love with athletic training. Like most, I got injured. And Mm -hmm. suddenly I I was told, go see the trainer, right? Mm -hmm. I know better now. It's the athletic trainer. But go see the trainer. And suddenly I found a way to combine medicine and law, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I think I'd like to do this. I don't like to sit still. I don't want to sit behind a desk. And I saw this environment where I could do a lot of different things and impact an athletic department, department a lot of different ways. So I went to Ohio University for my undergraduate education, loved it. Mm-hmm. And then once I graduated, I came back to Chicagoland area and I started a career that was about 12 years, I would say, maybe 10, 10 or 12 years actively engaging as an athletic trainer at small schools, first at St. Xavier University and then at Aurora University. Then I pivoted out of athletic training and moved into athletic administration and have been in that role. How and why did that happen? A couple of reasons. I think one is I had student athletes that were really interested in hanging out with me in the athletic training room, but they weren't as interested in going back out on the field. (laughs) And my competitive nature, that that doesn't sit well. The other part of it was is that I started to have a family. My husband, longtime college football coach, here I was an athletic trainer working football, and lo and behold, our first child was due the end of September. So that makes you reassess what your daily schedule That's looks like. It's right in the middle of football season. It's right in the middle of football season. So I started to reassess and realize that the skills and talents I had as, as an athletic trainer, my communication skills, organization being able to see the big picture, but also the minutiae, could help me be an administrator. So that's when I transitioned to North Central College. I went from driving 10 miles to the west to 10 miles to the east. So a very <laughs> low risk for me uh, as a parent and, and as a professional. 
before I talk some more about about the administration part of your life, let me c- come back to the to the training, athletic mm-hmm. training part. It it seems to me, uh, and I'm a, a, a former college athlete, former football player, back in the 1970s. So we had in high school, I didn't have a trainer. We had one of our football guys played three sports. One of the coaches on each of the sports knew how to tape ankles. That was it. I got to college, I got to Yale, and we had a marvelous trainer by the name of Bill Dayton, who was one of the real early leaders in the notion of what, what we're here to do is, to, is not just to support but to protect these student-athletes. Um, but you look at, at how it's, that, that profession has evolved, and I guess my question to you is, in the time that you were doing it, were, were you surprised at the evolution, at the changes in the profession? I was. I, I went to school with a gentleman by the name of Skip Vossler. So he started the athletic training program at Ohio in 1972. So he was the gentleman you just described yeah. having experience with, mm-hmm. having not a lot of formal knowledge, but having this desire to help that over the years, the athletic training education has become very stringent. And we used to have a model where you could go through an internship route. So you got experiences, whatever you got, and you took some classes and then you could sit for the exam. But now it's highly structured for our students to learn how to support our athletes through their entire span of their athletics performance. So everything from the how do I prevent to what happens when I'm acutely injured to to what's my responsibility afterwards in terms of the recovery. So it's changed greatly. The athletic trainers that are out there right now, they they are medical professionals. Yeah. They, they really are. And, and for folks who have that mindset of, eh, they just tape ankles, they just carry water, I think you owe yourself an opportunity to get to know them because they are so much more uh, to those student-athletes and to those coaches and to our institutions. I think it's astonishing what they've become. And I think you've characterized a great saying they're medical professionals now. They're not just people who are taking up, know how to do a basket weave tape of your ankle kind of thing. So let's let's then move into now your perspective as an a, a athletic department administrator. And I want to focus on the idea of, of how an institution such as yours is able to keep pace because it seems like literally almost every month there's something new that comes out in terms of recommendations for making sure that, that we provide this, this safe environment for our student-athletes. Uh, I recently talked with Dr. Brian Hainline, who is the, the NCAA chief medical officer, and we talked about this document that was prepared that was released earlier this summer, Con- the NCAA in conjunction with a couple of other entities. And it, it was designed to, to provide a kind of an overarching look at different areas that can be helpful in, in preventing catastrophic injuries um, in terms of, of student-athletes. And a lot of it seemed, um, seemed common sense. Some of it is, is, and much of it obviously, all of it versed in science and good medicine. But my question to him, I'm going to ask you the same question, is, all right, if, if uh, I am at a, a Power 5 school, um, and I have significant more resources than a lot of places, I can embrace this document. I can say, all right, let's, let's make sure we get everything done that this suggests. What about an institution such as yours? How, when some, a document like that comes out, how do you then approach it? 
Well, we're actually just about to implement this inner association guideline on our campus. And the first thing that we did is made sure that everybody who's engaged with our athletic program, whether that means our coaches, our team physicians, athletic trainers, our facility folks, everyone is responsible for the health and safety of our student athletes. Everyone is going to play a role to ensure that they can play that sport safely. But we're, we're going to see it in different ways. So for us, we have to embrace this from a communication standpoint first, heavily engage our team physician, our sports medicine staff. And we literally went through the document and said, what are we doing and what are we not doing? And then we developed a plan on how we were going to educate, again, all of our folks about, their, about what their responsibility was in this healthcare cycle. Because we realized, I don't have unlimited money. I don't have unlimited staff. And there's going to be a culture change for some of the folks on our on our coaching staff about how they're going to have to do things differently. So we literally went recommendation by recommendation. And we've done this with other documents that have come out too to say, where are we deficient? Where do we think we can provide these resources? And then where can we lean on others to help us perhaps meet these goals and objectives? It's a process. It's not a, you know, I think as Dr. Hainline has said, when this document is fully implemented on August 1st, 2019, that is the start of your process of how to be compliant. It is not the end all be all because frankly, none of us are poised to be able to make some of these changes in such a short period of time. Give me a sense of perspective. How many sports do you have? How many student athletes do you have on campus? 23 sports and probably close to 650 student athletes. If you can compare that to some of the, the major division one schools, you have maybe as much as two times more sports than some of the schools that, that I have seen, right? Absolutely. And in terms of the number of athletes, comparable numbers of athletes. And yet I am sure if I took somebody else's major Division One school's budget and compared it to your budget, there would be, I don't want to say a significant difference, but maybe there would be a no, significant difference. No, say significant. Difference. All right, I'll say significant. Yes. Probably right. All right, so you're looking at the same document. Right. Okay, same recommendations. You're looking at your campus, your institution, which has probably more sports than most of them mm-hmm. and probably as many, if not more, student-athletes than most of them. So how do you do that? Not everything costs money right. to do. Some things mean you have to give up some time and you have to put in some effort. So I think about one of the recommendations in this document is that you should practice your emergency action plans in right. all of your athletic venues. Right. Typically, to rehearsals. Right, to rehearse what's going to go on in an emergency. And typically what would happen is your athletic trainers would probably pick a single venue to practice responding to an acute injury. And they wouldn't practice in the other venues. We met with our sports medicine staff and our team physician and said, what's the barrier, the challenge to you practicing these and practicing the emergency action plan everywhere? And they just said, time. We just need to find time. I said, well, great. Let's take this one step further. We have coaches that play a vital role in the event management process and that I might be the volleyball coach and I've been trained about the emergency action plan in the facility I play in, but I might be an event manager for soccer. I've never received training on what my role is in an emergency when I'm the event manager at soccer. So this year we're actually taking everybody to every venue and showing them how they would how we would want them to respond in case of an emergency if they're playing that role as an event manager or a coach in those instances. So it's not 
money that's prohibiting us. It's me saying as a director, you're going to take a full day and you're going to work with us on health and safety initiatives. And we're going to crank some of these things out. We were already doing an exceptional job. And I think this is where my background as an athletic trainer kicked in. I was already pushing our athletic training staff to do a lot of instruction for the coaches so they felt empowered to act in an emergency. So that the coaches were. They so felt the that they knew. knew enough to say, I can be the first responder yes. here. A student athlete's having an acute asthma attack or going into anaphylactic shock on the field, there's not time to call an athletic trainer. The coaches need to feel that they are empowered to act and have the knowledge to act. So we were already pushing, I was already pushing, that we're going to teach the, the coaches about how to respond to some of these things. So in recommendation six, for instance, of this document, when they list these 14 different things, we had already checked them off. So there wasn't this big curve for our, for our coaches, like they're going to make us do all of this stuff. Nope, you're already doing it. But here's another reason why. I've been, again, if I go back to this philosophy of everybody is responsible for the student athlete's health and safety, people need to be willing to move into each other's lanes hmm. when it's appropriate. I are, think, are people okay with that? Though? Because, you know, we have this notion in all professions where this is what I do. And I, I like your description of it in somebody else's lane. Mm -hmm. This is my lane that I'm traveling. Your lane is over there. Um, and are people okay with the notion of, especially in moments of crisis, okay with the notion of saying, I'm jumping out of my lane into your lane? We've got to realize that we can't be everywhere all the time. And I'm probably going to get kicked out of the athletic training club for this <laughs> one. But there are other folks on our campuses that are capable of responding to emergencies to get the emergency action plan started. It doesn't have to be an athletic trainer. I love athletic trainers, but I'm not resourced in a way that I can place an athletic trainer at every single venue. Give me, give me a sense of context. What do you have in terms of athletic training staff and compare that to what maybe a, a, a Division One major sure. power school would have? So we have five full-time athletic trainers and one part-time athletic trainer. Mm -hmm. We probably have about a trainer, an athletic trainer, one or one and a half more positions than other folks do that are in our athletic conference, for instance, but there's a lot of folks in Division Three that might have the same number of sports and student athletes that I do that might be trying to make it work with only two or three athletic trainers. Mm -hmm. If I go to the website of a Division One athletic department, <laughs> I'm probably seeing in the teens yeah. at the very least. Yeah, it's right? pages of names. It's pages because it's not just a single individual who might be working with football. It's right. six individuals that are working with football. Mm -hmm. So if athletic trainers can't be everywhere and health and safety is our goal, somebody else has to be able to recognize an emergency. So do I want a coach doing routine things like taping ankles? No. Do I want them evaluating injuries, making diagnoses? No. Do I want them controlling rehab? No. But in an emergency, everybody has a responsibility to act. And that's what we're trying to teach our staff. And that's what I think this document emphasizes, which is we all have a responsibility to make sure that we're safe. Last question for you, and it ties up, I think, all of this. And oftentimes the response for in situations such as this, and I'm not, I'm not targeting any particular institution, but oftentimes the response when something like this document comes out or any, any suggested um, protocols or procedures come out that involve change and maybe in, involve costs, You'll see the the smaller institutions, and and as we know, there are more Division three institutions playing intercollegiate sports than there are any other division, far and away. Mm -hmm. 
But oftentimes the first reaction is, well, I, we don't have the resources. We don't have the money. You know, those guys do. We don't. What is your suggestion then to, to, to folks who, who might be listening in on this as to, all right, maybe you don't, but here's how you have to handle it. What would you suggest to them? Well, I think the first thing folks need to do is realize the, the lens that they're seeing this challenge through in their moment. Folks don't deal with change very well. I think we have come to quickly think about this unfunded mandate concept, right? Somebody else has made this decision for us and they're telling us what to do and financially I can't make it happen. We need to find a way to engage those that are at the grassroots and at the operational levels of these things. Because my sense is, is that my hope is when other athletic trainers, for instance, look at this document, they go, yeah, I can get this stuff done. This can happen, and it's not necessarily going to cost a whole lot of money. Sometimes we get wrapped up that we just get upset that somebody else is telling us what right. to do, and right? That, that's, that, that, people and that's need to own it and something move on. just to this profession. Right. You think you're doing okay. Who are these people to tell us what we should be doing? Yes, but we should all realize we are not medical professionals. That's why we have engaged Dr. Hainline. That's why the NCAA has a chief medical officer. It's why we've chosen to embrace this concept of data-driven decision-making when it comes to healthcare. Own, own that and say, perhaps I should learn and listen first and ask questions before I just simply assume that I can't do this. And that's what I have encouraged my folks when I've been in the governance system and I've had an opportunity to talk to them about this document in particular is go back and ask some key questions and figure out where the gaps are. I can think outside the box. I can think creatively. If you hit a stop gap, then you need to call me hmm. and let me help talk through some things. But we need to get this in the hands. I appreciate we have an athletics healthcare administrator position and we're driving information to them. We're driving information to the head athletic trainer. But if that head athletic trainer is not also pushing this information to all of their assistants, we're all not going to be working under the same framework. So we've got to find a communication pathway that gets this to the masses that are actually going to operationalize this. Because I'll make decisions as an athletic director. Do I want to add staff? Do I want to find money? But in the end, I think I already have a lot of the stuff that's needed in order to be successful with this document. I just got to make sure that they know what the expectations are. Well, that, that's some marvelous and powerful advice, not only for your world and your profession, profession, but that's some pretty good advice for any profession out there for people to deal with these types of things. So Stevie Baker Watson from DePaul University, I want to thank you for spending some time with us and giving your thoughts and perspective on this. Interesting and helpful. Thank you. Right, you'll be well. That does it for this edition of the College Sports Insider presented by the NCA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. Thanks for joining us today. We'll look forward to talking with you again real soon. <laughs>